Hello everyone, this is Pastor Damien. You're listening to Sermon Audio from New City, Orlando. At New City, we believe all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. For more resources, visit our website at newcityorlando.com. Thanks for listening. So with that, I'd ask you to stand for this morning's prayer of illumination. Remember, we pray a prayer of illumination because we need the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our heart to not only see and understand the Word, but also to transform us to obey the Word. So let's pray. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth and find life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, please remain standing for this morning's scripture reading. This morning's scripture is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, New City. I like it. Um, Yeah, Damien said it well when he said, I'm learning to preach. It's always a little bit of a risk to let the youth guy on stage for any amount of time. So I'm just really grateful that you guys are giving me some time this morning. It's an honor to bring God's word to you. Um, I wanted to be clear that today, my only hope and goal is that you see and experience Jesus. That's my hope. And so whatever happens up here, if Jesus shines through, if he even pokes through, I I feel like that's a win. Um, I want to begin really by saying that I'm sobered by this passage. Um, if you're wondering why I said that, just know that as I've studied Romans 5, 12 through 21, I found it to be very dense. Um, it covers the scope of human history. It includes some seriously, seriously important theological doctrines. It touches on ethics and universalism and justification, God's sovereignty and original sin, which that last one, original sin, by the way, is called by theologians the most difficult subject in all of theology. So it's an easy day, guys, and we have like 30 minutes to talk about it. It's great. Might go a little long. Um, 
But as I prepared for this message today, uh, I really asked myself how I could possibly package all of this in a way that both respected the text and spoke to our hearts. I mean, how could I possibly engage all of these complex ideas and also engage our emotions at the same time? And the answer that I came up with is that I couldn't possibly do that. I couldn't possibly cover everything that this text has to offer in just one go. So instead, I'm going to try to attempt something here. I'm going to engage this passage the only way that I, as a person, know how. And it's not certainly, certainly not going to be exhaustive, but I hope it'll be helpful and encouraging to us today. Today, we are going to look at Romans 5 through the lens of story. An author by the name of Jonathan Gottschall, he was driving down the road one day, and he was listening to, of all things, country music. And, he, and the song came on uh, by a guy named Chuck Wicks called Stealing Cinderella. And this song is about a little girl who kind of grows up to leave her family and kind of go live her life, leave her father behind. And as he was listening to the song, he described something that happened. He says, Before I knew it, I was blind from tears, and I had to veer off on the road to get control of myself and to mourn the time, still more than a decade off, when my own little girls would fly the nest. And he was kind of mystified by that. I mean, he wondered to himself what had happened to him in that moment. And as he reflected, he came to this conclusion. He said, Who hasn't had a similar experience? When we submit to fiction whether in novels or songs or films or games, we allow ourselves to be invaded by storytellers who seize control of us both cognitively and emotionally. Somehow stories have the ability to captivate both our hearts and our minds, and it's kind of irrational. I mean, maybe there's some like survival value to storytelling. I mean, maybe we learn some things about how to live life from the characters, but that doesn't account for the emotion and the longing that can be invoked in us. I mean, it doesn't account for a guy weeping on the side of the road listening to country music, of all things. <laughs> Stories have the power to penetrate us to our hearts, even while we wrestle with some really heady stuff. And it's funny, though, I've noticed that humans have an odd tendency to love stories everywhere, except where they're kind of supposed to the most, which is the gospel. But our text for this morning asks more from us. It asks us to see the scope of human history and all of its fallenness through the lens of a story, a story that God is telling, and what's more, a story that's calling you into it. And I want to pause and consider that we might be bringing something to this time that might be distracting to us. Romans 5 might offer us the ultimate story, but there are still so many other stories that could uh, compete for our attention. So I want to ask what your story is. What story are you in today. I mean, maybe today you find yourself in the story of chasing success, a story that says you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps to achieve that American dream. Or maybe you're in the story of individualism. Maybe you're saying, I'm just going to follow my heart, and I'm going to do what comes naturally to me. I'm not going to let anyone else tell me what or how to be. I imagine that many of us here are in stories of brokenness, shame and guilt or despair, hopelessness, but whether you're entering into this time feeling broken or self-confident or prideful, wherever you are, I want, you to, I want to invite you to consider that God knew that you were going to be here today. And he knew how you were going to be here today. He knew that this would be the text that was going to be preached. And I want you to risk the idea that God is speaking to you today. He's not asking anything from you. He's not asking for you to fix yourself or to be the right way this morning 
I'd offer that he just wants to tell you a different story than the one that you brought. He's just asking you to listen. He wants to tell you the story of humanity because that's what Romans 5, 12 through 21 really is. So if you were to leave here with just one thing that I said today, just one thing, I would, I would want it to be this. In Romans 5, 12 through 21, we see the story of humanity is death reigning so that life might reign all the more through Jesus. The story of humanity is death reigning so that life might reign all of the more through Jesus. And we're going to see this by working through the three main movements of the story that Paul offers to us in this passage. So look, let's look together at those three main movements. It's always three points in a Presbyterian sermon. So there you go. Starting with the first movement in verse 12 of Romans 5. So verse 12 of Romans 5, uh, we find the tragedy of the story. The tragedy of the story. See, every story needs something to have gone wrong. Every story needs some kind of conflict. Every narrative needs a tragedy. And here we find it in verse 12. So read with me in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul starts off this section of the letter with the word therefore. Uh, And this is just a word that kind of connects to his argument thus far. And that means that we should probably do just a real quick recap. So in this letter to the Romans, Paul has given us a tour de force of salvation history. Salvation and righteousness, Paul has argued, is not found through a blood connection to Abraham or to the Jewish people, but through faith in Jesus. God has not waited for us to be a good people to die for us. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners so that we could be reconciled to God. And where Paul takes us after this, where he takes us next, is fascinating. He chooses to zoom way out to not just include Israelite history, but all of human history. Remember that one of the big points of the letter is that salvation has come to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people as well. And it's almost as if he's trying to remind us that we're all part of the same story. And he goes all the way back to the beginning, to the very point at which sin entered into the world to do that. When Adam chose to rebel against his creator back in Genesis, the Bible says that sin entered the world, and through sin, death. And this didn't just affect Adam and Eve. No, it affected every single person who would be connected to them as human beings. And this is the idea or the doctrine of original sin that later theologians and writers like St. Augustine would go on to to kind of uh, flesh out. And that's this idea that our starting point as people, our default state, is to be infected by sin both in nature and in choice from the moment we're born. And it's important to ask, why is this the case? You might find yourself even resenting this idea a little bit because you're not Adam. Like, you did not eat a piece of fruit at the bidding of a talking snake. I didn't do that. I hope no one did that. Uh, Why do I suffer for someone else's mistake? What I want you to hear me say is that to some degree, no one is going to fully be satisfied with any answers to that question. There is a mystery here, but it's important to sit with. I like like what Blaise Pascal says. He says, nevertheless, without this most incomprehensible of all mysteries, original sin, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. Within this gnarled chasm lie the twists and turns of our condition. So humanity is more inconceivable without this mystery of original sin than this mystery is conceivable to humanity. Paul's accounting for the presence of evil in all of us. 
philosophers and theologians have been trying to do this for a long time or to deny it for a long time. And it would almost be easier in some ways to swallow that mankind is basically good and that there is no default bentness about us. But remember that we're engaging in a story and we are in the tragedy of that story. See, any redemption, any victory is only as powerful as the darkness that it overcomes. And Paul isn't going to mince words to minimize that victory. And neither should we. He's offering us the definitive explanation for what's gone wrong. And if we were real with each other for a second, is it really so hard to believe that something is fundamentally broken about us? Not long ago, the internet magazine Aeon published an article listing findings in research that indicates that human beings are dogmatic, rigid, hypocritical, and attracted to darkness. Parents, I'm sure I don't need to uh, convince you that your children, as lovely and precious and beautiful as they are, have a sinful heart inside of them. Nor do I have to remind you that you are not perfect. You, every day, make choices, experience desires, and behave in ways that are in direct rebellion against God. And this is deeply personal. And whatever modern philosophy or technology or Disney might be saying, it's not getting better. We're stuck. But do we really want to take Paul at his word that because Adam sinned, sin and death spread to all of us? Can one man really cause the downfall of a whole race? Well, there are two men who spoke to that question. One is a theologian called Herman Bovink. He says that we stand on the shoulders of earlier generations and we receive all of their accomplishments undeservedly without having asked for it. It's waiting for us at our birth and no one objects to this. But if the same law begins to exert its effect in things that are bad and makes, partakers, uh, makes us partakers in the sin and suffering of others, the human mind revolves and charges this law to be unjust. The same son who accepts his father's inheritance refuses to pay his father's debts. We love the idea of inheritance when it's something good, but we reject it when we are inheriting evil. As Jesus said, though, we are of our father Adam, and we've inherited his sin. The other man who spoke about this is a fictional character in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. I've always wanted to use him in a sermon. <laughs> father Zosima is a monk in this book, and he says... As soon as one sincerely accepts the idea that he is answerable for the sins of all men, he will realize that that is indeed the truth, that he is answerable for everybody and everything. But if you seek excuse for your idleness and impotence by blaming other people, you will end up bloated with Satan's pride and murmuring against God. In other, in other words, friends, we are all connected. The idea that we're just islands unto ourselves and that what one of us does doesn't affect anyone else is just another way that sin has warped our vision. We all came from one place. We all have one human ancestor, and when he rebelled, so did we. When Adam exchanged communion for isolation, so did we. He represented all of us, both physically and spiritually, and when the head of our race fell, so did we. And that is a tragedy. We were created to be alive. But Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that since Adam sinned, death has reigned. He says it three times in this passage, verse 14, 17, and 21. Sin is reigning in death. Death reigned. We are living in a conquered universe, and our evil dictator is death itself. 
Death is reigning and there's not a thing that we can do about it. In fact, as hard as it is to wrap our minds around, it's something we deserve. I think of a depiction of what this kind of looks like uh, is, in that, um, is in that book that I mentioned a minute ago, The Brothers Karamazov. There's a character in there that I really admire. His name is Ivan. And in this book, uh, you have Ivan, who is this atheist, and you have his brother, Alyosha, who's a monk. And they sit down and they have this conversation about the suffering that they both encounter in the world. And Ivan is actually a very consistent atheist. He acknowledges the, the suffering, specifically the suffering of children that he sees all around him, and he even admits that to some degree, mankind is at fault. His eyes are open to the reality of death's reign. But what he refuses to do, what he won't do, is he won't accept that one day somehow everything will be made right. And he's talking with Alyosha, and as he's doing so, he despairs that he wouldn't even want God's justice because redemption could never be worth the pain that it took to get there. And though despair must never be our ending point, I think it's really important and it's a disservice to us if we don't allow our inner Ivan to speak. I think we'll fail to see the world as it really is if we don't wrestle with death's reign both outside of us and inside of us. And so my application for this first point, this first movement, is an invitation to take a moment to grieve the idea of death, of the reign of death. Just let it, for this moment, permeate your thoughts. My friend Benjamin Kant has an app on his phone that reminds him every day that he's going to die. And the reason that this app even exists is because we don't like to think about death. As humans, we try to ignore or deny the pain of our own condition. But Paul isn't going to let us off the hook here. He is going to demand that we acknowledge the tragedy. So I ask you to consider, how does death reign in your story? What choices have you made to participate in that reign? We are all of us sinners, and all of us have been sinned against. And this isn't abstract either. As I look around this community, as I see this gathering of broken people, I know that none of us are immune to death. I'm painfully aware that death's reign amongst New City means broken children, broken marriages, and bent desires. It means clinical depression and suicidality and self-loathing. It means busyness and slavery to appointments and quarterly financial goals. It means loneliness. It means parents who have abdicated their responsibility as parents. It means the pain of infertility. It means exhaustion from an inhumane schedule, and it means trauma and sexual abuse and fear and power-hungry world leaders and disappointment and cancer and loss and grief and hatred and war and shame and churches splitting. It means lies and a rampant sex trade industry and drug addiction and racism and nationalism and legalism. It means spiritual and physical abuse. And most of all, it means the doubt in all of us that God could possibly bring any good out of any of this. And that's where God would have us. How could we possibly move towards the hope of life without moving through the valley of death? And I know that it's painful. But I believe God is asking us today to feel the weight of the reign of death, to sit with it, and let our hearts grieve with it. Okay, take a deep breath, because that was a lot. But you've made it through verse 12, the tragedy of the story that God is telling. And if you know anything about stories, you'll know that after the tragedy in any good story, you're going to find a turn, which is our second point. 
Verses 13 through 17 give us the turn of the story. The turn of the story. So just look a bit closer at this part of the text with me. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by the one man's or because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to ask that you bear with me as I get a little bit technical here, okay? Basically, what I'd like you to imagine in your Bibles is the start of a parenthesis at, that, at this part of the section. In fact, uh, you, you might even have something like a dash right there at the end of verse 12 in your Bibles. And the reason for this is because Paul is going off on a bit of a tangent here. You're going to notice back in verse 12, the, verse, uh, the words, just as. And the reason that those words are there is because Paul starts a statement that he doesn't actually finish. Normally in literature, you'll see a just as statement followed by a so also statement somewhere real close by. But there isn't one here, or at least not close by. It's kind of like Paul saying this. It's kind of like saying, okay, just as sin and death entered the world, dot, 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 parentheses, summary of the whole of human history and fallen redemption, just real quick, close parentheses. That's verses 13 through 17. In other words, Paul's wanting to remind us how God has dealt with sin and death before he hammers home his argument. And so that's what he does. Paul does a flyover of redemptive history, and he really does this through a comparison between Adam and Jesus. So just let me pause and name here that there are a number, I, I mentioned earlier, there are a number of really beautiful and important theological ideas in this passage, and no one sermon is going to be able to hit all of them, uh, but if you want to do a deeper dive into Romans, I just want to point you to our Romans Bible study that meets on Sunday mornings and also to our New City Equip podcast because we're really trying to use those resources to unpack what we can't do uh, here. But respecting that, I want to do my best to sort of hold the whole, sort of the whole text together and deliver a sense of the overall message, which I think is helpfully done through that word type in verse 14. Paul says that Adam was a type of the one to come. And we get something like this in literature all the time. It's called a metaphor. In a metaphor, we compare two things and we contrast two things, right? So a metaphor, we want to see how one thing is both like something else and how one thing is unlike something else. For example, Michael Phelps is like a fish in that he swims really fast, but as far as I know, he's unlike a fish in that he does not have scales or gills, as far as I know. And just like metaphors, it is important to know both how Jesus is like Adam and how Jesus is unlike Adam. And that's all contained in that one word, type. So how is Jesus like Adam? Well, in all of history, there have only ever been two times where one man has been able to do something in the place of all other men. The first was in the rebellion of Adam. The second was in the redemption of Jesus. When Adam sinned, somehow mysteriously everyone sinned. And when Jesus was sacrificed, God counted that as the punishment of everyone who receives his gift. One man in the place of all. That's how they're alike. But how is Jesus unlike Adam? When Adam sinned, many died. 
When God offered his charisma, which is just a Greek word that's translated here as free gift and also as grace, many came alive. When Adam sinned, all of mankind stood totally condemned, but through the death of Jesus on the cross, the ones who received that free gift were made totally alive with God. See, this comparison is at the heart of the whole text, and without it, we're going to miss the meaning. In verse 12, Paul introduces the reign of sin and death and invites us to feel the hopelessness that comes along with it. But then as any good storyteller would tell you, he brings us to the turn, or the turning point in the story. Death has won, Paul says. Darkness is complete. We have sinned, and we stand condemned before God. And the crowning achievement of Satan, the final victory of sin, the nail in the coffin of our judgment, was the murder of Jesus Christ on the cross by his own people for our salvation. That's the free gift that he's talking about. Today's Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, as uh, Damien said, and in this Thursday, we're going to hold our tenebrae service, which honors that moment in history when darkness had seemed to win. But if you've ever read a fairy tale, you'll know that the night is darkness when? Just before dawn. If you've ever read or watched Lord of the Rings, that's just when, it's just when the armies of evil look like they've completely overpowered the good guys, that's when the cavalry comes riding over the hill. And that's the turn that we're talking about. It's the turn that says, hey, you know how in Adam everyone died and it seemed like all was lost? Well, I am here to tell you that there's another one who's like Adam but better. And his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and in him death dies and we live. I think I'm done. No. (laughs) So what do we do with verses 13 through 17? I mean, how does this speak to us right here and right now? Well, in our first point, I ask you to consider death. Now I'm going to ask you to consider Jesus. Consider that God has offered justification in Jesus. Justification in this context just means being declared right before God. And so could you reflect on that for a moment? You are broken. You were made to be in communion with the creator of the universe, and you cut yourself off. And yet, the second Adam, the worthy king who stood for all mankind, cut himself off for you to be reunited with the Father. So just look to Jesus, his blood dripping down his body, and imagine his eyes looking at you and seeing you and saying that you are worth it. Think about God seeing you who trust Jesus, holding all of your sin and brokenness in his hands, and declaring you righteous. Because that's what it means to receive the free gift of righteousness. It means to trust and to risk the scandalous idea that all of our sins are forgiven. Martin Luther said that to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sin and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. I mean, it is hard to hope. But brothers and sisters, I'm inviting you today to consider the impossible, terrifying reality that Jesus Christ offered himself freely for your righteousness. So do not dare, not to dare to see his love for you. If death reigns through your rebellion, grace reigns when you receive Jesus. Well, we're almost done. We've seen the tragedy of the story and the turn of the story, so we're going to turn to the last section of the text and our final point. In verses 18 through 21 of Romans 5, we see the triumph of the story. The triumph of the story. So would you read with me verses 18 through 21? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you might remember all the way back in verse 12 when Paul started that statement with the phrase, just as. Well, here in verse 18, he finishes that statement. You see it in the words, as and so. Remember, just as, so also. He's picking up his argument right where he left off after reminding his readers of the importance of what Jesus has done and how it compares to what Adam and all of us in Adam did. That's not where he stops. No, see, Paul takes that concept and he builds something on it that is so mysterious and so scandalous that I actually hesitate to try to preach it. Paul makes the argument that death reigned so that grace would abound. Uh, let's look at it a little closer together. First off, I want, I want to import something, or I want to address something important here uh, in the wording. A person might read verse 18 and conclude that Jesus' sacrifice means life for all men in the same way that Adam's sin meant death for all men. Historically, some people have used this passage to say that it doesn't matter what you believe, uh, religious or not, everyone will be forgiven and justified by Jesus regardless. But unfortunately, this is unfaithful to the text. It's a mistake to see it that way, and it's also a historical heresy called universalism. And whether or not we would like to be, this to be the case, it's not what Paul's teaching here. I'd point you back to verse 17. Paul writes that those who receive the abundance of grace will reign in life through Jesus. So even though he says all men there in verse 18, the most faithful interpretation seems to be that he's using that word all reflectively, okay? Adam died for all men, and if all men live, it'll be through Jesus. Remember in metaphors, it's important to show how one thing is like another and how it's unlike the other. Well, a paraphrase of this passage or this statement might be helpful for you, uh, and it would, be same, it would say something like this. It'd say, one act of righteousness leads to justification in, all, in life for all men who believe in Jesus, who receive his gift. Now, my guess is that I might have lost some of you there. Some of us might be tempted to think that Jesus' sacrifice is less beautiful because it doesn't save everyone. I mean, how dare God give life to some people but not everybody? I've heard some people say that they won't believe in a God who doesn't forgive everyone because that's not fair. And I want you to hear me say that I, I hear that and I, and I get that line of thinking. I really do. But could I offer a response? I think we can throw around this idea of fair as if God has to submit to our ideas of right and wrong and fairness. But lest we forget that we only know right and wrong because God gave those things to us. I'm thankful that God doesn't follow what I think of as fair and just. Because if he did, I would have been lost a long time ago. The hip-hop artist Lecrae writes in his song, boasting that if we fought for our rights, we would be in hell tonight. I'd invite you to consider that your idea of justice is not the same as God's. And also I would invite you to consider that that is good news. Because who amongst us would die for sinners? as Eric preached last week. No one except God. God's grace is wild, and it's beyond our control and our understanding. He's not tame, but he is good. 
But I want to return to what Paul is really trying to get at here, okay? We're looking at the last half of Romans chapter 5 through the lens of story. And what Paul gives us here, and especially in verses 20 and 21, is the greatest plot twist of all time. It's all been leading to this moment. Because a, po- a plot twist is in, this, uh, in this context is that moment in a story when something happens that changes everything. You think the movie that you're watching is one thing, and then X happens, and it turns out to be completely different. For example, the villain might actually be the hero's father. The butler might actually be the one who was guilty the whole time. Uh, or maybe the whole thing, the whole movie was just a dream. And all of these are plot twists, right? But what is the twist here? The twist is that death isn't just beaten by life. Sin isn't just defeated by grace. No, in fact, death and sin were serving God's grace this entire time. It's all right there in those two words, so that. So look again at 20 and 21. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in in death, so grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, friends, death is not just an enemy of life. Death is the servant of life. And the story God is telling is that he was never taken by surprise by Adam's transgression. God didn't fail, and he was never beaten. Death was allowed to reign so that life would overcome it. Jesus submitted to death to finally defeat it. Sin was allowed to increase so that grace would abound. And somehow sin and death were always part of the plan. When Satan laughed at the death of Jesus on the cross, he didn't know that Jesus' last breath was the trumpet sounding for life to triumph over death. And if you haven't picked it up yet, I really love the fantasy genre. <laughs> and not long ago, I was watching this uh, TV series called The Wheel of Time. And in this uh, series, it's a pretty good series, there's this moment, this scene when a gypsy woman uh, is talking to this young warrior. And the gypsies in this show are pacifists. They don't use weapons. They don't wage war. And the warrior, this young man, he doesn't understand that because uh, his whole life has been kind of defined by fighting. And so uh, the gypsy, to kind of explain her point of view to this young man, uh, she tells the story of how her daughter was actually chased and hunted through the woods by these bandits. And when the bandits caught up to her just for fun, they killed her. They stabbed her through the, the chest with a spear. And so the woman is sitting, she finds her daughter in the woods, and she's sitting there by her daughter's body. And she says, I was trying to work up the courage to take that spear and go hunt those bandits like they had hunted my daughter. And the warrior, the young man, he says, well, why didn't you? And the gypsy says, because I wanted revenge. And then the warrior, the the young man, kind of surprised, he kind of looks at her and he says, well, that doesn't sound like pacifism. And the gypsy says, well, what, what greater revenge against death than life? Friends, Jesus has taken the ultimate revenge against death because he's alive. And that's the twist. That's the triumph of the story. The death of Jesus means the reign of life. So what does that mean for you today? It's simple. Let Jesus' free gift, let Jesus' one act of obedience in dying on a cross become your revenge against sin and death. Make Jesus' death yours. Are you bound to addiction? Then die with Jesus. Is despair or anger ruling your life? Die with Jesus. 
Are you a slave to success? Die with Jesus. This doesn't necessarily mean we die physically, although lots of people in history have done that. But what it does mean is that we wake up every day, and even though the weight of the world might come crashing down on us as soon as our eyes open, even though we are dared again to be tempted to submit to the reign of death, we choose to follow Jesus' obedience because his sacrifice makes us able to. And that's what we mean when we say that we're crucified with Christ. It just means that because Jesus said yes to the cross, we can say no to sin. We are empowered to find hope when everything is hopeless. We are empowered to see light where everyone else can see darkness only. Because when history was blackest, grace was most powerful. So we can look death and sin, the tyrants of our age, directly in the eye, and we can rejoice because the stronger they are, the more God's grace abounds. And finally, I want to, uh, I want to acknowledge as well that there's a not-yetness to everything that I've said up until now. Verse 21 says that grace might reign. Now that word might, it's not like a future possibility, like saying like the Buccaneers might win the Super Bowl next year. I don't know. Uh, it's not a future possibility. Grace's reign is a future certainty but it's a certainty that has not fully come yet. And that's part of the word, that's part of what the word might means here. It means that sin reigned in death so that one day fully, grace might reign through Jesus. The triumph has not yet come fully, but it has come. And so we're in this complex place of already, not yet. I mean, we're like Jesus in the grave on Friday. We're victorious, yes, but the final resurrection on Sunday has not yet come. But brothers and sisters, Sunday's coming. We labor on, but Sunday's coming. So I want to recall what I asked at the beginning of our time together. What story are you a part of? Is it the American dream? Is it just being true to yourself? Or is it the story of exhaustion and tiredness? Is it guilt or shame from the sin you're carrying or anger at the ways that you've been sinned against? The stories we carry are many, but I hope today God has captivated you with his story. Whatever lesser story you are tempted to believe about yourself is nothing compared to this one. Death has reigned so that life might reign all the more in Jesus. This story accounts for the tragedy of the world. It shows us the truth, I'm sorry, the turn, the death of death in Jesus, and it announces the final triumph over sin and death where grace and life will reign through Jesus starting now and more fully soon when he comes back again. That's the story I want to tell. And that's the story I want to be a part of. And I think, I believe, that God is inviting you to be a part of it too. Would you pray with me? Father, I trust that today my words were not my own but yours. I ask that your word, your good news, your story, will do its work in our hearts and that your spirit will move in us this week as we celebrate the week that your son sacrificed everything for our righteousness and for our life. Encourage us in the death of death. Would you give us spirits of repentance? But let us go from here lighter, not heavier today, as we're empowered by your triumph over death. And let, would you let us live for your fame and your glory alone in the city of Orlando and also in the wider world. I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.